So let's pretend that Iron Gold is not a novel, but it is a movie coming out in 1993, or like okay. a 90s action movie. <laughs> and it ha- and here's the trailer. Here's the trailer for Iron Gold as a mid '90s action movie. You know Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stallone, like the just like the Rambo's, the Terminators yeah, of the absolutely. world. Let's pretend that Iron Gold is exactly that. Okay, here we go. Here's how I think the trailer is gonna go. After ten years of war, he's back. Darrow of Lycos, his gruesome sidekick Severo, his BFF Victra. I mean, you you can intersplice them, kind of making cool poses. You oh know? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. just like yeah, and then helicopters like <laughs> falling out of the sky. <laughs> and then here we go back into it. And his wife, the sovereign of the solar system, they're ready to take down the society and look good while doing it. This summer, it's part four of the Red Rising saga. Iron gold. That's pretty good. Is that pretty good? Yeah. Okay. I think the one thing you missed is, um, you know, after 10 years of war, he's back, Darrow of Lycos, and he's madder than hell. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the the one thing. I missed it. Okay. So add add to this. So so I missed one thing. Is there anything else I missed? Not that you can handle in just like recording the VO for this. Okay. Yeah. Like, it's it's all the sound effects, you know. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, I'm thinking like the, I'm thinking this. It's like after ten years of war, he's back, and then like back in black by ACDC is like bump, dun dun dun, dun dun, and like Daryl of Lycos, like that. It kind of you know, so it's like that that drop that would happen. Absolutely, Iron Rain kind of like sound design going on. Yeah, yeah. So lots of lots of explosions. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking like you know Daryl looks just like he's wearing way too tight of jeans. Is at the same time probably uh, a okay. tank, tank top that doesn't quite fit him too, way too tight as well. Do they, wear, do they wear skinny jeans in the Iron Rain? No, I mean they not. I'm just saying like that would just you know. Oh, kinda, just because it's intersplicing scenes. Yeah, it's, and then you, okay. and then he's got he's got a burner in his mouth, just kind of half in his mouth sideways. Absolutely, sunglasses. Yeah, that's that. That's what I'm seeing. I and, like it. Anything yeah. else to add to this '90s movie trailer here? No, not if it's early '90s. I think I think we nailed it. Uh, we did. Uh, okay. Job done. All right, let's Hey-o. go. Home. Let's go. Episode. <laughs> They told me I could only be a custodian. They told me I could only be a police officer. They told me I could only be a lawyer. Doctor. Performer. Financier. Sex worker. Engineer. Warrior. Programmer. Pilot. Doctor. Performer. Financier. Sex worker. Doctor. Financier. Pilot. Sex worker. Warrior. They told me I could only be a hell diver. We're done being told who we can be. Jeremy, we have made it to Iron Gold, the single best book in the Red Rising series. We've done it. Amen to that. It is the single best book. Is that a hot take? I, I'm confused about this, to be honest, okay. because everywhere we look, and when I say everywhere, I mean Reddit, 
Um, <laughs> one it, place. Yeah. One, the single place we look, yeah. it seems to be never dogged necessarily, just in rank order tends to be the lowest. It's an A minus, right? That's kind of what they're saying. Yeah. I've seen it kind of like, oh, yeah, I've read it once. It's good. But no one's like, it's an awful book. Yeah. Um, I've seen a few. On Reddit, though, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's Reddit. That's yeah, Reddit. exactly. So, but uh, overall, um, I mean, they're all wrong. This is the best book <laughs> in the series. So, this, I believe this is the best book in the series. You believe that. Mathar believes that. We all believe it. Yet, I would also say this. Unlike you and Mathar, this is not my favorite book. Morningstar is my favorite book in the series. Uh, I just think this is, but I think this is the best book. I, th- I just think this is the uh, the most, in ways, the most detailed, the most involved, the, the also the most compelling storytelling uh, in a lot of ways as well. So that, that's the difference. I, I can separate my favorite from what I think is actually truly the best, even though that's not easy. No, uh, I mean, this, this is like, I can do it. It's like that Rotten Tomatoes thing where you look and it's like the critical score and the audience score, right? And I think that's kind of the delineation between like favorite and best. Yes. Are, are we the critics then? Is that how that works I, nowadays? I guess so. That's I weird. don't know. <laughs> um, let's go ahead and talk about Iron Gold and kind of how we read the book in preparation for this series. It's um, about, we're going to do like these five episodes of the, on Iron Gold. And obviously you would read a book from start to finish or, you know, from left to right. That's mm-hmm. how you read a book. But we actually did it a little differently. And I, I know that we watched a, like a YouTube video a while ago. This is so long ago. I don't even remember where we came across this, but we watched something. One of the Pierce ones? Yeah. It was like a Pierce okay. video. And he said something to the effect of like, he wrote each POV at one single time. Like he sat down and he he wrote like, I'm going to write the Leary POV and then he would write that or then he'd spend time writing the Daryl POV and then he'd write that to completion and then just move on and move forward. And we were like, well, that'd be kind of cool to read the book like that. Like how would that work? Since that's the way he wrote it, wouldn't it be interesting to to try to read it that way? I found this to be one of the favorite, like my favorite way to to actually digest this book. I liked this better. Did you like this better? I, I don't know. I, I, this kind of goes to like better or valuable, right? Yeah. I I kind of have this innate belief that it's important when you can read these POVs separately. I think it gives you kind of the separate accounts a little more um, in a linear manner that you can follow. Because I, I found that in my reading the different POVs, that to be true, that you can, Lysander is a great example, right? I found myself understanding his story. I'm not going to say sympathetic necessarily, but more understanding toward his story and his motivations as Pierce designed them than when the POV kept switching and there was an amalgam of different stories that kind of mixed and really paint him in a much worse light than I think Pierce did separately. But that being said, I think that like, Pierce's intention, obviously, was that mixture, was that swirling effect, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, like, while the value is in what Pierce intended, I still think it's extremely promising to, like, look at how did Pierce separate these and how did he actually uh, create these characters in a linear manner, like you are saying. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the way that anyone should read this book at first is to read it from yeah, start yeah. to finish, like that. But on a reread, when you're just kind of going back to the book— and this was a little difficult because you have this character named Philippe that kind of jumps between both Lyria's and Ephraim's POV. So that made it a little difficult to follow our track, specifically those two POVs in kind of the later stages of the book. But outside of that, I found this to really be really fun and really valuable, like you said, because I was able to remove some of the cynicism that I had towards certain characters and just allow myself to immerse them, myself in their headspace. 
and just understand the worldview they have and the thoughts they have and the reasons why. I think when you read it as a jumble, like how Pierce kind of like Mm -hmm. how it's actually presented to us um, now, I think it's harder to see the, the clarity of why these characters are the way they are. So a lot of my guard and cynicism dropped and I really came to appreciate certain aspects of characters that I didn't have before. And then, like you said, I'm not like also saying, well, I think they're all awesome now or they all right, <laughs> right or they're all good. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Pierce put these characters in for a hyper-specific reason. And I think that this book really, it's not a binary book. I think that a lot of what Red Rising through Morningstar has this good versus evil, Star Wars kind of like empire versus rebels feel to it. And this book and this the second series does not have that at all. It differentiates itself wildly from that. And there, the gray area is being imbued by Pierce heavily. And so to dismiss a Lysander POV or maybe an Ephraim POV and just say like, well, I just don't like them because they're they're baddies. I think you're missing a lot on the story. I think that it's there. Pierce is offering a challenge to you, the reader, for you to ask yourself, why are these people here, and what what are they trying to express, and what are they trying to put on you as a reader, and are they what these questions that they ask, should we be asking ourselves these questions? That's I I really like that process. I like kind of having to wrestle with the book in a way. You know, like you're saying, I valuable is a great word, and I think it's worth uh, you know avid readers of multiple times to go back and, and try it this way and see what they think. And I'd say the same about Dark Age. Um, question for you. Uh, I mean, I have an answer too, but I want to hear you first is like, did you have difficulty at any time? Were there pieces missing to the puzzle that kind of made you miss the back and forth when you read it like this? I didn't miss it. I just thought, like, I, I'll say again that I just had a hard time following that that through line of Philippe that character that you can say, kind of say persona that Ephraim plays kind of jumps back and forth between Ephraim and Lyria's chapters. That was a little puzzling because there's one time that I was like, wait, did I skip a chapter? Like, I for, like, did I somehow like go too far forward? But I didn't. I just had to, I just had to go back and double check. So that was a little hard to follow. I just, that's a kind of a heads up, I guess, maybe yeah. a warning. Um, otherwise, I thought it was just a great time. I really liked doing this. I liked doing it better than just the straight read through. Yeah, and I felt a, a very similar way in, in, you know, with the Philippe kind of uh, dialogue and stuff. But uh, I, I, and I think that's why I encourage it so much on a read through, maybe not even a second one, but maybe like a third kind of read through. Yeah. Because that context is so important that I felt like I, I could be getting lost, but I wasn't because I knew the story, I, I think is where I'd go. Yeah, I think no, us knowing the story well enough and we, between the two of us, read it, you know, several times a piece. So that made a lot, it made a lot easier to do it that way. So I, I, yeah, again, I can't say how much I enjoyed it enough. I just really liked it. But <laughs> let's go on and take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the prologue of the Iron Gold and spending the entire episode just focused on the prologue. But a quick heads up, the conversation is a lot about war and there's a lot of tragedy in war. And so there's some heavier themes that the prologue deals with. We just want to give a quick, hey, we care about you guys. This is kind of a heavier conversation. We don't normally go this heavy. So, I mean, it might not feel that way to you, but to us, it it kind of feels that way. So we just want to say, hey, like, uh, if you're not in the headspace to talk about war and tragedy, (laughs) maybe come back (laughs) at a later time. And also, if you have the opportunity even to maybe take a quick break and read the prologue of Iron Gold so you have, like, all the context of what we're going to be talking about next because it's a fascinating conversation. Absolutely. It's right in the beginning of the book, by the way. (laughs) There it is. Boom. (laughs) Okay. Let's take a break. We'll be back. (laughs) 
I love coffee because of its taste, but also for the caffeine. Sadly, I can't always have great tasting coffee in my pocket or my bag, but I can easily carry around Neuro's energy and focus gum with me wherever I am. This gum has a great peppermint or cinnamon flavor, and it also has 80 milligrams of natural caffeine per serving, giving you that necessary boost of energy wherever you need it. All Neuro Mints and gum are vegan, sugar-free, aspartame-free, and gluten-free. And right now, when you order from their website, getneuro.com, you can get 15% off your next order with our promo code, HailReaperPod. Go get some today. You will not regret it. That's getneuro.com, G-E-T-N-E-U-R-O, and use our promo code at checkout to get 15% off your next order. Hail Reaper Pod. Jeremy, we're back from break to talk about the Fall of Mercury prologue in Iron Gold and spending the rest of the episode talking about this. And I just want to get right into it with you. There's a lot of fascinating things that we're going to talk about with this prologue, but the first thing that jumps out, and a lot of people have probably picked this up, but just in case you haven't, we want to talk about this because it's really interesting, is that it's written in third person. And you're like, well, why is that a big deal? Well, if you remember, the first three books are not written in third person. They're written entirely in first person, present tense, and Darrow is the actual narrator. So then we get to this point and we have a completely different narrator. And I just found this so jarring. I just thought this is so weird. I don't know what you felt, but it was not, it wasn't that it wasn't my jam. I thought this is really interesting, but I was just like, why? What's going on here? Yeah, I, I think I've said it on some past podcast or something, but I don't know much literature that I've read that's first person. Mm-hmm. And so I think the first book was pretty jarring for me. And it took me a while to get in the flow of reading the style but once I was in that rhythm, it felt pretty natural. So yeah, when the prologue for Iron Gold came around, it You're was like, like it is... took me back and I'm like, now this feels weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but like you said, I think um, it it's definitely stands out from the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not bad. It's it's quite interesting in yeah. sort of how it like throws up the flag and it's like, I'm different. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And so you and I were very puzzled by this in a conversation and I remember talking to you and you're like, well, why don't you just ask Pierce because we were just speculating on why like well why why would why would Pierce write this way and you're like well why do you just ask him like why do you mean just ask him <laughs> like what's so, when that, you think I can just like call him go like what's up bro you want to tell me what what's going on here no but you did encourage me just like send a message just send a message to see what he says and shout out to Janelle for getting this response but he actually wrote back with a very thoughtful response and uh, he said that we can totally read this on the podcast so here it is mostly I just wanted to play around First person isn't my natural medium. And so I wanted to see a third person omniscient in the Red Rising world because there's far more literary devices that you can use. I find it an easier writing style because you can show spectacle more fluidly with the greater scope, but also dive deeper with a single sentence than you can in first person. Imagine if we can go inside Karnas's head as Darrow is killing him, or a Grey's as Ragnar is walking past, or a Blue and a Ripwing as he takes on the Morning Star or a laborer rising up on Phobos after Daryl's address. Sometimes I wish I wrote the whole series in third person, but then I know I'd lose the immediacy that comes with first person. So it's certainly a trade-off either way. Considering I was moving from a Daryl POV and expanding it to others, it felt like a natural bridge to show how large the world of Red Rising is, how much time had passed, and provided a more condensed lyrical way of info-dumping 10 years of cultural backstory. Hope that helps. Pierce. 
And it does help. Thank you, Pierce. Uh, <laughs> we really appreciate you taking your time to to offer such a wonderful explanation. And Jeremy, like knowing the prologue, and you know, we read it multiple times in preparation for this conversation, and then also seeing this response, like what really stands out to you? Yeah, first I I want to just say that like I also appreciate Pierce's response, and I really appreciate the fact that he understood. Um, the dichotomy between the two writing styles and what the trade-offs were, because that's exactly what it is, is trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And while the first trilogy has just that immediacy that he talks about, just that hit-by-hit action that, that being right in Darrow's brain brings you, the addition of these POVs brings something so incredibly valuable. And it allows you to just kind of root yourself in the story. Mm-hmm. This is much more of a relatable series and I think it's a more honest series. And, and when you have these multiple POVs, I think it really allows you to draw a through line and you can find the truth of the matter because before we were questioning Darrow, right? Yeah. How reliable is he of a narrator? And I think now that we have four POVs, we sort of understand, we get a way better picture of exactly how reliable he is because again, we can draw that through line through the, right between all of the POVs mm-hmm. and get the truth. One thing that really sticks out to me, and I agree with everything you said, but just like, I love that he says first person isn't my natural medium. Like, I was like, what? <laughs> like, you just yeah. wrote all of your books in this, uh, all your published works are in this first person present tense feel. And then he's like, that's not where I'm really at. It's not where I excel. But, you right. know, I, I, so, uh, <laughs> okay, cool, dude. Like, but also this, this flies, like this whole, these movements, like I talked about earlier, that you have this starting with the fury, the city the bombs and the reaper, this has this poetic nature to it where he says, you know, he actually mentioned a a lyrical way of info dumping. It does feel like that. It has this kind of cadence of rhythm to it that is so unique and so different than the way Daryl would talk. Daryl has this really interesting way of talking, communicating to the readers that I know I really like. I think, I I think you do too. But when you're in Daryl's head, he has this staccato kind of like quick jabby like way of talking to you, especially in the first three books. I think that Pierce progresses Daryl a lot more. So he's like more fluid and how he communicates to the reader with his internal monologues. But in the prior three books, especially the first two, it's very short and kind of quick uh, and precise. Whereas this is just something like going into this narrative style. It's so different. The why that I had or the thinking that I had before asking him, it was like, who is talking? You know, that was, that was like, is it, uh, is it Pierce? Is it like another character that we don't know yet? Or is that someone, who is this? But it's, yeah, it's Pierce. It's, it's him actually putting himself in the story for the first time and offering almost like his perspective in a way that is, it's so different than anything we've done before. Yeah. And, and there's this new imagery that's, that's added to the story, which makes it that relatable story. And like he says, can we put ourselves into a gray as, as Ragnarok spy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he does a very similar thing in isolation in this prologue. Suddenly you're in a world where you're seeing fishmongers, right? And yeah. you're seeing people huddled in what is probably an equivalent of like a subway system. Yeah, You're seeing a classroom setting with teachers and students. You're in this wonderful bedroom of an orange girl who then uh, breathes a warm breath onto a window like everybody has ever done in life yeah, and then every, draws every in the fog. Yeah. 
And that's what draws you in because before we've had this very kind of throne room centric story, right? Yeah. It's about the elites of society. It's, it's kind of this perspective of uh, general's war room or of the citadel, right? The throne yeah. room. And you don't really get like the people's view in, in air quotes. Mm-hmm. But now he's allowed to do that because of third person, right? Because yeah. he can't write like, four new POVs just to put you in these people's heads. For, like for just a, yeah, just a second. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the beauty of it, right? Is like, I've never felt more a part of this. And, and we mm. know Pierce meant that because he brings up these things from history, right? He roots this in the kind of the real world. Like, you know, he utilizes things that have happened in our history as part of, you know, society's history as well, or Earth's history. And in very much the same way now, I can see myself as that orange girl, right? It makes it more relatable. And for me, this series feels less fiction because of that. Mm. And it almost draws on like this, these elements of nonfiction because of that rooting, I think. Yeah. For me, when I read the prologue of this, The Fall of Mercury, it feels like I'm watching a World War II movie. Um, mm. It has that relatability, it has that tangibility because something that happened, happened in the last century. And that's a daunting and scary experience. And I feel like that fear is embedded in this, uh, in this prologue as well. But you, you know the scenes, everyone knows the scenes. If you watched a war movie, they typically take a little bit, a few moments because that's typically the, the war isn't focused. Those war stories are not focused on essentially just the everyday citizens, but they always take a moment or two and they highlight how scared they, those people must be to hide inside of their huddle under their kitchen table or to hide in the shed in their backyard or whatever that might be. This conjures up that exact experience. And part of me kind of hates that because of how scary and how visceral that can be. And like that, the city, that's, that's what we're talking about. So that second movement of the prologue is highlighted in this experience of the poor people have nowhere to go. They're, they're stuck. They're kind of, they're on the outskirts of town in this tenement housing. And that's where that orange girl is located. And then you have these, um, the, the rich elites were able to go other places. You have the middle class going to places and you have people huddled in this kind of subway. And it just, it's so terrifying. Just like, I think that fear is very palpable in this. And then you have those, that section you move on towards the bombs which is that third movement of this prologue. And it highlights this gray, you know, young teenager and says he has wearing the, he's wearing the, um, the charm of a sweetheart around his neck. And as mm-hmm. those bombs are falling from Darrow's warships, he shoots one and knocks it off its course. And it flies directly into that tenement housing where that orange girl was said to be. And she is just, she's gone. And it's just like how the, the scariest thing and the, the most, real thing about this is that it's something I've heard and I'm going to paraphrase, but I've heard this before is that the real victims of war are just the everyday people. They're just the citizens that are just trying to live in these places. Like, you know, go back to World War II and you see just the the, the normal cities that were just absolutely just raised to hell and people just were just extinguished. And this is just so gross. I, I hate, I hate what a accurate depiction of war this is and how like kind of terrifying this is, but also I appreciate it for that same reason. Yeah. I find myself appreciating as well. And you brought up that world war two imagery with, which, you know, if you watch any of those movies and, and they take you to, you know, Paris or London during the bombings, you just see these 
complete faces. Almost half the building has crumbled yeah. around it, and you can actually see the interiors of these homes. Mm-hmm. And that's like what's conjured up in my mind. And again, it's just rooting us. And I think one of the things that Pierce does that's so honest is he's able to strike this balance of this amalgam between hope and tragedy. Mm-hmm. And that's why of the entire prologue, the the orange girl just is just cemented yes. in my mind. It, if I think back, it's like, I just think of her story and I think of her yeah. and I think of the, of the sling blade she's drawing on the window. And you get this sense that it brings her hope. That's what she, that's what it says. Yeah, th- you know these are or courage ins- or something to that effect. Yeah, these yeah. are enslaved people, mm-hmm. right? And they desire liberty, they desire agency, mm-hmm. and there is this deep, deep hope that Darrow is going to bring it. That the Reaper is coming, mm-hmm. right? And and yet at the same time, you're faced with the reality of what that means. Yeah, and the same girl who even against some of her teacher's wishes saw the beauty of freedom and desired it so deeply for her and her people faced an instant reality of what the truth of war is. Yeah. And that's entirely tragic. That breaks my heart. And um, I, but at the same time, I deeply do appreciate how Pierce was able to capture that in such a short uh, little mini like series. It's so like, it's uh, not a half story. a chapter of, of story. Yeah. Okay, compared to like a normal Red Rising chapter. I think that that's what this book is. I think this book is the kind of the meeting place of hopefulness and tragedy. You see that kind of over and over as a reoccurring theme. I think the best, for me, the best way of putting that is through uh, that, that lens of looking at that is in Lyria's POV. You see a character that I think goes through one of the top two most horrific moments in the entire series that we have to date. You know, this is this being recorded at a time where Lightbringer is not out yet. But we have the Camp 121 experience. It, it makes me cry every time. It's so hard to read because it's so real. It happens. But then you have Lyria, you know, you have her progression. You see her hopefulness. You see her bitterness a lot, obviously, but you see your hopefulness kind of shine out. And by the end of her POV in this book, she is a more hopeful character. And I think you can say that about every every POV has this like, almost like kind of like two waves kind of going back and forth against each other, kind of crashing on top of each other. And you're hoping to see that hopefulness one get higher and bigger than that, that tragedy one. Sometimes that doesn't happen though. I think Darrow's POV is actually exactly that. Like the tragedy wave overcomes the hopefulness wave in a lot of cases. So it's just trying to, Pierce is playing with that, this uh, dichotomy of hope and tragedy so much where he didn't have to do that as much. I think Golden Sun obviously has notes of this too, but you don't see it as much in that book compared to this book. It's just that, that crossroads of these two huge themes of Red Rising meeting. And and I think this is purely speculative, but I think this is Pierce's intention is he was seeking honesty. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Iron Gold and the Iron Gold series is giving us is, is Pierce is asking these big questions of the universe, of his universe and saying, I tied up the last book in such a neat bow. Yeah. Um, but is that real? Is that honest? Yeah. What does 10 years later look like? Mm-hmm. And I think he himself was interested in the answer to that question. 
Yeah, I think so too. I think he, it was like, it's a mental exercise for him. And then he's bringing us along for the ride. He's like, <laughs> he's, he's asking us to confront so much. So you see the, the docks of Ganymede. This is like, I know mean, we've talked about this a lot. We talked had an episode with Pierce about this, but we bring it up a lot because it's a, and you see it as a huge pivot point for the entire story with ramifications that go long past the moment itself. But you have this moment where we as readers in Morningstar, not having read the Iron Gold or Dark Age books, just put those aside for a minute, pretend you haven't read them. You watch Darrow and Victra and Holiday and Sephi on the bridge of the Colossus becoming the Morningstar and taking out those docks. You're like, wow, that's sad and, and epic. And But you know what? It's pretty cool because now they just kind of ridded themselves of an enemy for the future. This book says, guess what? That sucked. That mm -hmm. sucked so bad because what you don't see in, or rather what's not explored in Morningstar is that obviously there were just everyday people on that. There was also Sons of Ares on that. People, I think that when we look at, we think of the society, we look at enemies, we think of just golds, but who's actually operating the those docks? Who's actually on there? Like, it's just regular people. It's just regular, it's lower colors. But here's the one thing that I think is mentioned in passing. I'm pretty sure it's mentioned in passing in Morningstar, but not expressed like it is in Iron Gold is the wreckage of the, of the, um, the yes. docks fall down onto the cities below and cause mass destruction. Like we're not just talking like a few hundred little homes. We're talking like thousands and thousands and thousands of people getting caught up in the wreckage of, like, again, normal people, regular citizens, just getting completely wiped out because of that. So this book is like, like I said, he's kind of scratching that itch and in, in a way for us, like, it's like, this isn't just a, you know, Hey, great. Like they got the docks of Ganymede and Morningstar. That's your view. You're like, that's kind of cool because now, this gives them a clear shot to go take down Octavia. That's what you're thinking at the time. This book is saying, you know what? That was horrific. That like wrecked an entire group of people in, in a very profound way. So that's honesty. That is definitely honesty. Yeah, I, I was going to say the exact same thing. I'm glad you brought up that point because you can look back at Pierce's response to our question. And it's like, if Pierce had the ability to leave Darrow's POV or if mm. that scene had been written in third person, mm -hmm. the narrator could have quickly taken you to the everyday people on the moon of Ganymede as the wreckage from this orbiting uh, dock, right? Just crashed into their city, into their housing, into into their everyday lives and, and caused that destruction. But that is that trade-off, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying that that's a real thing, that you'd lose that and you're just there with Darrow in his mind only, and you never get to go to the surface of Ganymede. Yeah. So I think the book is this kind of balance between, and like we both said, tragedy and hopefulness. But I think another point of this book, the large point of this book is to, for you to wrestle with these, these actions, these things that have maybe done in the past or that are happening in other POVs in this current book and kind of go, is this a good thing? And that's hard. Because Pierce is asking you to 180 in a lot of ways from the things that he told you in, in prior stories. He's asking you to, to now question those things as if they are good or not, especially Ganymede. The idea of it, the intent of it, or the virtue might have been a good thing because you're ridding an enemy that wants to prolong oppression and slavery. But what's the cost of that? And is there an, was there another way? And like... And how did it affect this other people group? And that's that's a there's a lot of questions that are you're being asked to to kind of wrestle with. I'm not gonna call out an individual 
because I've seen a couple of these and actually seen them recently uh, on the Red Rising Reddit. I know that you and I might talk about the Reddit because um, that's where 30,000 howlers are. Yeah. That's a, probably the biggest place that we have to all kind of go and point to like, here's our community. But it's not always the story we want to hear. I want to hear stories about Severo and Ragnar and Darrow <laughs> having a blast and kicking butt. And just I want to hear those stories. Those ones bring me more joy. But that's not what Iron Gold is. It's not what it was designed to be. So we can't just dismiss these other POVs and just say, because these characters feel this way or they don't stand for the virtue that maybe Darrow does, that they should just be written off. Because I think that's just a, that's a basically saying to Pierce Brown that I just don't care about more than half this book. Yeah. I love that just idea of, of questions being asked. And one of the big questions in this series that I see being asked by Pierce is, was this liberty worth it? Yeah. And I think the resounding answer is is obvious in this question, right? And yes. that's yes. yes. It, the casualties, the the cost of war, if you will, is worth it, right? But then it kind of begs the further question of like, how far can we stretch that? Like, what is worth it? Because you, you start getting into these red hands and you start getting into this other thing. And, and it's like, how far can you take this for the importance of liberty? Mm-hmm. And it asks those questions like in history, you look at some of these costs of war and you critique the generals, you critique the leaders in charge of these movements. And you start asking questions of like, was that necessary for the win? Yeah. Would that have prolonged the war and cost more casualties than this decision cost? And like, I'm not going to answer those like I did the other one. I have a lot to say about that, but yeah. I'm not going to get into it. That's a tangent. But they're hard questions is my point. Yeah. And Pierce wants to explore that. And you don't get that through Darrow's perspective mm-hmm. because there's constant justification of his position that you tend to agree with because we're team Darrow. For sure. And only now can we start seeing the counterbalance of those of those narratives and and actually explore these greater questions in the universe. Well, I, that's well said. Speaking of Darrow, though, let's get to this guy. Let's get to our boy here. Yeah, what about him? Well, I mean, so we have, again, this, this prologue, the, the fall of Mercury is split into these four, what I would say, movements. You know, the Fury being a very poetic in nature, very short, describing uh, Atalantia's stances that the war is about to hit. The city and the bombs, which we talked about, kind of combined together as one piece to kind of talk about the the way the city is feeling, like characterizing it and kind of like the people of the city of Taiki as war is hitting. And then you finally get to the Reaper. And this is where it gets largely, it kind of feels less poetic in nature. It feels more like that that narrative really starts taking hold. And you're met with the character that you've been writing with for three books for the first time, getting back to this character. But he's such a dramatically different version, especially the one you left off in Morningstar. You felt like Daryl had learned so much in that that bridge between Golden Sun and Morningstar. And then you're greeted by this version of this character who's just very battered. Ten years of war has weighed on him so heavily and so mightily, and he's just kind of done. It's so it's so interesting because it kind of feels like, wait, I didn't sign up for this. Like, this is kind of not my jam. And that's who the character kind of remains to be through the, the, the entirety of the book. Yeah, this weariness of the dragging on of this Ten Years' War again takes me back to that World War II imagery. And what you often see is almost like this excitement or zeal, or you can call it, you know, patriotism or, or just a willingness yeah. for these soldiers to kind of 
kind of go in an honorable way to defend their families and defend their countries. I, I know, you know, a great example, um, phenomenal series, Band of Brothers. You, you see this, right? When they're in uh, boot camp and they first land on Normandy, um, sure, it's scary, right? But mm-hmm. but there's a willingness to engage and there's this life in their eyes. You also see it when they deal with um, the opposition, right? Mm-hmm. They actually see them as people. They see them as, hey, he's a fisherman, like just like yeah. me. He's a father, just like me. He's got a girl back home, right? There's this ability. Very 1940s of you to say something like that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they talked in the movie, I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I'm referencing the movie. Yeah. And it's like, as the show progresses, as it drags on, as you begin to see the destruction and, mm-hmm. and the length of war, you begin to lose that life out of the soldier's eyes. And I think they did a wonderful job at that. You, you see this weariness, um, and you, you see like, to juxtapose that, you, you see them start to lose um, seeing other people as people, right? Yeah. They, they, they start viewing them almost as animals. And I remember one scene, and I know you actually know this series better, so you'd probably be able to name it, but I recall these, I believe, American soldiers pulling German soldiers out of a barn. Mm-hmm. And there's this just simple invisible dialogue that's in the air that's like, okay, you know, do we take them prisoner? If so, we have to march back on duty, guarding these guys. We have to check them in as, as you know, POWs. You know, we have to care for them. We, all these things. And it's like, that's ah, inconvenient Yeah, for these dogs, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's much easier if we just execute them on the spot. Mm-hmm. And you, you would never have seen that at the start. And I'm talking generalizations, of course. Sure. Um, but these gentlemen that you see in the beginning that are good people, just, you know, they resolve to this in, in the end of the series just shows, I think, so viscerally what that length of war does. And I think that analogy is kind of what we're starting to see in Darrow and how we're being set up for the second series. Yeah. I think what you said is really true. You see like those soldiers kind of in that specific Band of Brothers series, you see them go from looking at opposition uh, as people to just purely opposition. They're mm-hmm. just in the way of the goal. That is, I think, what in a lot of ways what starts happening with Darrow and starts happening in the, I mean, not to go too far in advance, but you see that happening a lot more in Dark Age with certain characters as well. Just see them as in the way and, and almost an inconvenience to the to the goal. It's That's episode eight, by the way, of Band of Brothers, uh, hard watch. But there's this moment at the end of the prologue here, it says that Darrow, this is this is the thing that strikes me the most. I have it highlighted in my book. It says, men call him father, liberator, warlord, slave king, reaper, but he feels a boy as he falls towards the war-torn planet, his armor red, his army vast, his heart heavy. I think that it's so interesting because he has these nicknames that are very grand and they, they're, I, I mean, I love some of these. I mean, we love the Reaper nickname. That's like the killer nickname of all. And then you have, but Liberator and uh, Slave King and just, and Father, like this man is, a, mm. is adored by so many people because he's, he's liberating and he's, he's freeing and he's, he's promising like that orange girl. He's promising this hopefulness, yeah. but he feels like a boy. 
he actually, prior to that, he says he doesn't even recognize the echo or is questioning the echo of his own life and talking about would EO even recognize her dream? Like there, like he, he is going 18 levels deep in his own head as he's about, literally as he's actually falling, he's in an iron, like he's thinking that in the process of an iron rain, he is falling towards the planet. That's what it says. He's going down and this is what he's thinking about. He's not thinking about, um, you know, for freedom or anything like that. I know right. he's just like, he's like, I'm just a child. Yeah. Like I am battered. My soul is battered. Well, and yeah, absolutely. It brings up one of the major themes we've talked about throughout the first trilogy, and that's identity crisis. I mean, Darrow just kind of waffles as he goes through his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he gets carved into a gold and starts to lose his identity as a red, starts to see himself as one of the elite golds in certain ways and kind of goes back and forth. But as he resolves in Morningstar, he properly sees him as himself as both, mm-hmm. right? He properly sees himself uh, in this context that he actually discusses toward the end when all hope is lost, when when it looks like they're going to die. He says something to the effect of at least we're going to die together. Yes, um, I love with, that line. With friends. Yeah. And he holds these monikers tight, you know, he is the reaper, the bringer of death. He is father. And there's so much pride and, and attachment to those titles, even for him, because he he kind of shirked that identity crisis. Well, fast forward 10 years later, and it's like, like you said, he's back to child. Like, yeah. like he doesn't even associate himself with these names anymore because he's so ravished over these 10 years. I mean, mm-hmm. this guy's been at war since... I mean, one can argue essentially since he was 16, yeah. which would be half of his life yeah, exactly. at this point. Like hard, hardcore war, you know, like Iron Reigns and stuff for mm-hmm. more than 10 years. But what toll does that take? I think we're getting that in this perspective. For sure. The the idea of I die with my friends seems so lost. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that mantra. That's, he's alone here. I know. that, But well, in a way, it, well, he's not, but in a way he is. I get Correct. What you're saying. Yeah, he sees himself as alone. So like that, that character as like, it's kind of almost like, again, like it's not what I signed up for with this, this Darrow guy. Because this Darrow guy, like when, when I was reading about him in Morningstar, which is just one book ago, he has this whole I- idea that he comes back after they kind of, I guess, rescue Quicksilver. <laughs> you want to say it on Phobos. And there's that Sons of Ares reveal and it's like a big deal. And they kind of all kind of come back together and the band's back together in that scene. It's like chapter 22 of Morningstar or so. And then they kind of create that I die with my friends mm-hmm. mantra, which I think is kind of epitomizes a lot of that book. I feel like that is like they're in this together. They're moving forward. They're, they, they're all in lockstep. And then here we are. It's like that I die with my friends thing. It actually has that same feeling of just being washed out. Um, like a lot of other, there was other feelings here because we don't know this because we don't have a story of those 10 years. But can you just imagine for a moment? Because it, it, extrapolating this and thinking if Darrow is a real person, how many friends have died in that 10 years? Like mm-hmm. the laundry list of people that Pierce just didn't get a chance to write about that he maybe became close to in like, you know, for maybe a seven year period or a three year period. And they're just gone now. Like how, how weary you, that would be how, and how that would feel. So I feel like that it's kind of a sad, it's kind of like it, meeting Darrow in this, uh, state when you come back to Iron Gold, I can see why a lot of people don't like this book, or they don't like, or they rate it as low because 
the hero of the book and also the character that you have grown the most fond of is not the version that you met or experienced prior. I think that's why a lot of people, I kind of struggle with the book. Yeah, and in many ways, he's, on his character arc, taken major steps backwards in this 10 years. And, I mean, if you think of, like we were talking about, the juxtaposition between Die With My Friends and now this isolationism Mm -hmm. that he has. You know, he feels alone, detached, weary. And in many ways, he's, it's kind of a cyclical thing, right? He's causing his own isolationism. And, And we see this throughout the story. He does things. His actions are actually separating him from those same friends that he was willing to die with. He's pushing his wife away and not in like a marriage pact or anything like that, but in like a, I can be around you. Like I physically need to leave right? because of decisions in this book, his wife and child, he begins to push Severo away. And there's all this kind of separation that he and his actions are actually causing Mm -hmm. um, because of this feeling of being alone, I think on like a subconscious level or something. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's the prologue of Iron Gold. So what's, I want, I want to do something with you. Okay. (sighs) Take a big, deep breath. Okay. Just get everyone, everyone listening, just take a big, deep breath, get it out of your system. It's a heavy topic, it's heavy stuff. And we're going to be talking more about Darrow next episode. That's just like his dedicated episode in Iron Gold. So I don't want to get too deep on this, but yeah, this is, this is heavy stuff. And guess what? We're not done. <laughs> we have more to talk about considering the beginning of this book before even chapter one hits. So we're going to take one more quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about one more really cool and important detail before chapter one starts. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, Jeremy, we're back again to talk about the title page of chapter one. <laughs> How interesting. No, uh, I, I might, one of my last read-throughs of Iron Gold, I read it several times to prep for uh, the series. I, I just kind of just caught my eye in a way that hadn't caught it before. And it was just this, it's part one, wind. And the very next page is, you know, chapter one. But below that was this poem and by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And I was like, why is this here? Like why, why of all things? Because if you look at part two or the title pages for like the, like part two and part three, they're in world quotes. There are quotes from, I believe, uh, Lorna Arcos and House Ra. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. But this one is, I looked up Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and that's a real person <laughs> from our <laughs> world. And I was like, that's so interesting. So I want to have you read the portion here from this poem that's on the, uh, the title page here. Yeah. And this is actually the, I believe, third stanza yes. of the full poem mm-hmm. that Pierce uses. So. There is a poor, blind Samson in this land, shorn of his strength and bound in bonds of steel, who may, in some grim revel, raise his hand and shake the pillars of this common wheel, till the vast temple of our liberties, a shapeless mass of wreck and rubbish lies. So after reading this, after it catches my eye, and I'm like, like, who is this and why is this here? I Google the name Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, great name, and quickly find out that he's a professor, a great thinker, and a poet, obviously, that wrote a book of poems 19 years before the Civil War, and this poem is titled The Warning. He 
had not taken a stance on slavery in America to this point. He'd been asked about it numerous times. He'd been asked to even take a stance, and he'd kind of declined. But here he is taking an emphatic stance because not only does he write a book that is anti-slavery in America, but he takes all the proceeds from this book and actually donates it to uh, people that are fugitives of slavery and also black churches. So he's, he's making a major declaration here about what he thinks about slavery. And I find this to be now like knowing that context and that knowing like then you kind of see the through line of why Pierce is placing this here at the very beginning of the book. And like you said, you know, 19 years before Civil War, it's amazing to think of, you know, published in 1842, you know, Wadsworth comes from New England, which was the epicenter of the anti-slavery movement in the United States. And coincidentally, actually was like heavily involved in post-Civil War reconstruction, particularly in like Southern education, opening schools uh, for uh, the former slaves Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So it doesn't surprise me actually of, of where Wadsworth came from in that way. But I think what's genius of his work here is that he is forecasting the future based on history. And and how he does that is he goes to a Jewish parable, one of, of Samson, you know, uh, some might recall that as being like the Samson and Delilah story. Yeah. But in the end of it, you have Samson himself being enslaved, right? The Jewish people being oppressed and he is taken captive. His eyes are, are he's made blind, right? Essentially eyes gouged out and he is just completely humiliated. And God comes to him and empowers him one last time to just push over the literal pillars of this building, causing it to just collapse on all of the, what would be officials, what would be leaders, um, military Mm -hmm. personnel, right? And himself Mm -hmm. just killing everybody as kind of this natural, like this is what happens when you push somebody that far. And I think it's very good of him to equate that to what was happening in America at the time. Yeah. And he is kind of giving commentary of like, look what happened here in the past. Mm -hmm. This could easily happen again. And that's why it's called the warning, right? He's like, I'm telling you that you need to stop. You need to turn away. You need to seek justice and you need to look at people as humans, lest you push this too far and the same thing will happen, right? This mm-hmm. this American experiment, the liberties that, you know, some in the country had at the time would all dissipate, would all yeah. vanish because they weren't asserted across the board. And that is essentially the bearable that he was bringing to the United States and, and saying, like, knock this off. And what we see Pierce do is he brings it back, right? He, he looks at this and says, not only did, was Wadsworth warning America and in the Civil War era, right? Antebellum South of these things, but he's actually saying like, it happened again, right? And happened X years in the future in my story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, he takes the literal past of history and and incorporates it. Mm -hmm. And so he says, the society, right? Led by Octavian did not alter course, did not change this oppressive nature, did not view people with mutual humanity and instead stayed the evil course, right? The unjust course. 
And what happened is essentially that same thing, right? There was this supernatural God power that came into the low colors essentially and yeah. caused this toppling of all structures, which just imploded on itself. Yeah. I think that the the warning by Wadsworth is evergreen. It's Absolutely. An, it's an always, always on, essentially. Like it's always, the light switch for that is always on. I think, um, you know, in our world, 2023, 100%. Mm-hmm. But also here again, it applies to the story that Pierce is telling because it did happen in the society. Yeah, I like that you said that the evergreen um, uh, ness <laughs> of, the, of this poem. Yes. And it's like, it's yes, we're looking at that post facto kind of what happened with with the society is that they fell into this trap, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I agree. They are looking at uh, the society remnant. They are looking at the red hand and these, these things and saying the warning still exists, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's just cyclical. It, it started over again and there's another warning. Interestingly, when I first read this, and, and I want to know your take too, I saw Darrow as Samson, mm. um, especially... You know, when you look at like the box scene or something like that, right? Yeah. And you, you kind of get this same sort of imagery of what happened. Um, first of all, did you think that and do you still think that? I did think that and I do not think that any longer. Yeah, same. Because what you see is that in Wadsworth's poem, mm-hmm. the Samson is actually the entirety of the oppressed. Because right. they're going to rise up and maybe bring forth the champion to do to do that work that that pushing those pillars down mm-hmm. but really ultimately it's an it's a rise like it's a it's a ground level group a corporate group of people kind of coming up and saying enough and yeah maybe and like Samson was erected as the champion of the Jewish people Darrow was the same this in the same way but it wasn't just Darrow's journey. It wasn't just Darrow being just purely Samson doing it all on his own. It was a an entirety entire group being oppressed and saying enough. And then they that's what birthed Darrow into the story and what caused him to be able to push those pillars. So Darrow, in the way, is not Samson, but he is the final act of Samson. Yeah, I have the exact same thought is that when I kind of looked at Wadsworth's context mm-hmm. um, of American chattel slavery, meaning property, right? Yeah. You have this idea that, yes, those slaves were Samson, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's what Pierce is getting at, right? Is that um, low colors or, or all colors really outside of gold. Yeah. Um, Even some golds, right? Yeah. As we see in the Sons of Aries uh, mm-hmm. graphic novels. Yeah. Are Samson. And I agree with you, right? It's that same supernatural God-given strength that takes that final act, as you said, I like that, you know, that is what Darrow is. Mm -hmm. He's the actual impetus, the actual power of the people that comes out. But in doing so, the thing about the Wadsworth thing is just kind of riffing here. The final act is that it kills everyone, including Mm -hmm. the Samson. So like everyone loses if this doesn't get 180, like everyone. So like even the, the people that rise up because um, can also be killed and destroyed. That's what we see in that prologue of Iron Gold. You yeah. see, you see that those low colors kind of be the vic- the real victims in a lot of way. That orange girl is the real victim of this war because she has nothing to do with it. She's just a she's just a girl. She's just going to school and doing her thing, and and she's the victim. So I think that when you, that's the warning. The warning is to uh, just treat people 
like everyone is everyone is obviously we are all equal stations we are all people we all need to be treated with grace and love and kindness otherwise this is the result mass destruction yeah exactly so on that heavy note uh, we wanted to say uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, going on this journey with us. And know this is some heavy stuff here in, in Iron Gold. As this book just starts, it's like, <laughs> like you know, what seven, eight pages in, or whatever it is. Like yeah. you were, this is what we're seeing. So I don't know if it's going to get happier or lighter in nature, but we just want to say thank you, and we care about all of you. We love and respect all of you, and we thank you for listening. So uh, we'll see you next week. Until then, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. The Hail Reaper team is Jeremy, Mathar, Janelle, and myself, Philip. All artwork was done by friend of the podcast, Jeff Halsey. Our theme music, The Gordian Knot, was composed by Jacob Albaum, with production and sound design by Tim Bell. A huge thank you to Pierce Brown for creating the Red Rising Saga and fostering our passion for books. And thanks to all you listening, especially our patrons. If you want to learn how to become a Hail Reaper Howler and get additional content, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Hail Reaper. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at Hail Reaper Pod, and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others like you discover the show and is much appreciated. Until next time, Hail Reaper. <laughs>